Paul begins Ephesians chapter 4 with this transitional verse that we already pointed out. This, uh, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So he begins this section um, with a reminder of the gospel realities, right? That all, everything that Paul is going to say in chapters 4 through 6, these are not in conflict with the gospel. These are not ways to earn the favor of God. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We imitate God because we are beloved children. We walk worthy because of the calling to which we have been called. We don't do it to gain our salvation. We don't do it to merit our salvation. We do it because we are very aware of God's graciousness and kindness towards us and saving us in Christ. And again, do you see what Paul calls himself? A prisoner for the Lord? He calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. So this is different. This is different when he called himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, right? Now he's a prisoner for Jesus. Now his imprisonment is not, he's not a prisoner of Christ. Christ is not the, the one who has him in prison versus Caesar has him in prison. Now his imprisonment is for the purposes of Christ, which again emphasizes that Paul is able to, in prison, carry out his mission of apostleship. He is still a sent one, even though he's a bound one. And the gospel is still going forth despite opposition. And he calls them to walk worthy. And he gives them how many, how many qualities? How many qualities of unity does he give them? You probably guess without even looking down. You could probably guess. How many qualities? What's that? Four. Oh, more than four. It's a significant number. Seven. Yeah, he gives them seven qualities of unity. It's perfect unity is what he's describing. He, calls, he says they're one body, one spirit. You're called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Before he gets there, he starts to describe the character, the quality of the character of a person who has been transformed by the gospel, or the quality of the character of a person whose life is being lived worthy of the gospel. He starts with humility and gentleness. Mary said that humility is thinking accurately about ourselves, or not thinking too highly of ourselves. (coughs) It's, It's a call for us to model the humility of Jesus Christ, who in Philippians 2 did not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. He became a servant. We're called here, this is not a call to be humble in order to merit the love of God. We're called to be humble as we image the image of God, as we show, as we look back to Jesus Christ and see his own humility. And when we fail to be humble, it's it's a reminder that we've forgotten the gospel. Not being humble is forgetting, like Paul, that we are the least deserving of all people to be in the new creation kingdom. And that flows to gentleness. Gentleness is in opposition to brashness, harshness, quick-temperedness. It's a disposition of, being, uh, of having strength under control. So gentleness can look like physical gentleness, right? Like you don't beat people up when you get angry. That's one. It can also look like intellectual gentleness, which my guess is for people studying to be theologians, that's more of what you need to work on. Like you're, you're able to be harsh with your words or snarky or demeaning to people, but you choose not to be. You, 
Yeah, meekness, gentleness. That's what we're talking about. You're able to be, in a cutting way, very sarcastic. And even use people's words against them, but you choose not to. You're able to do it, but instead you choose to, if you get slapped you know, on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Right? You're asked to walk one mile instead of you walk two. You're, you're gentle, not just physically, but intellectually, too. There's a lot of focus, I think, on physical gentleness, but there's not much focus on intellectual gentleness. Yeah, psychological gentleness, or even emotional gentleness. You're not brash with people and, and play with their emotions and toy with them. You're compassionate and kind like Christ himself. The quality of gentleness is Jesus saying, come to me and I will give you rest. And we, I think we can try to emulate that in all facets of our lives. Again, if we're not gentle, we've failed to remember the gospel, that Christ has been gentle to us. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. He's not trying to one-up us or show us, uh, put us down. Next, patience, being patient with one another, especially as qualities of a pa- pastoral ministry. Being humble with people we're speaking to in ministry, being gentle, not beating them up and then being patient as well. I mean, these qualities, if you don't have gentleness as a pastor, if you don't have patience as a pastor, you, you church discipline someone at the first offense, right? Like, like somebody does something wrong, and that's it. You're, you're done. You're, you're being kicked out of the church. Or not playing the long game, like we mentioned before, with counseling with people and, and walking through people with times of suffering or even time, like sin patterns. Knowing that uh, oftentimes for most people, growing in their sanctification takes many years, decades, lifetimes, just like it does for us. I mean, I know you, you, you are more sanctified than you were five years ago, but you're not as sanctified as you wish you were. You still sin in ways that you wish you didn't, and the people we minister to are going to be the same way. And we should not be surprised when the same sin patterns last years and years and years. We should be patient and gentle with people. And that leads into the next one, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. The idea of the bearing with one another in the text has to do with putting up with one another. Like it's, and especially with people, with people who are annoying. Like that's what is in mind, is people who are annoying <laughs> living with that reality in a loving way. Like, so it's not, just, it's not just being okay with their existence. Like, okay, you exist as a person over there, great, you stay over there because you're one of those annoying people. It's, it's instead loving people even when they're annoying. Because we're, let's face it, we're going to have annoying people in our church. We are going to have people in our churches that annoy us and that are difficult to love. Some people in our churches are going to be easier to love than other people. But we are called to bear with everyone in love. So it looks like putting up with them, but in a loving way that goes beyond just being okay with them existing over there, but actually seeks them out and loves them, just like we seek out and love everyone else, even the people we would prefer to not be around or wouldn't be our friends if we weren't called to be be their pastors. (laughs) There are people who... They would not be our friends if they did not join our church. And we're still called to love them. And then, we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, do you see what we're called to? We're not called to create unity. Do you see that? 
we are not called to create unity in the church. We are called to maintain unity. There's unity that's already been created through the death of Jesus. And our role is to work to maintain it, to not allow things to come in to break up that unity. So divisive people in the church respond to that, respond to that appropriately. You know, the, the people in the Bible who are divisive are always the false teachers, not people who respond to false teachers. The people in the Bible are always, that are divisive are always the slanderers and not the people who respond to slanderers, right? So what, a lot of times when there's false teaching and people respond to false teaching, maybe from the, the pulpit publicly or maybe even in private conversation, the response can be, you're being so divisive. Actually, the divisive people are the ones who are spreading the heresy. What you're doing is maintaining the unity that Christ died to purchase. It can look like that in false teaching areas, but it can look like that in other areas of our church, too, um, when there's divisions within the church. An example is Paul to Utica and Syntyche. He points the, it's a public letter read to an entire church, and he goes, as for Utica and Syntyche, ask them to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine being Utica and Syntyche as that's being read? And <laughs> the entire church hears it. It's like, hey, even Paul knows that you two are not being united. And he's asking the entire church, Let's get these two back on the same page together again. That, that's what it can look like also is reconciliation with brothers and sisters who are, seem to especially not be bearing with one another in love, not be being patient with one another, not being gentle, not being humble. And then he goes into the establishment of that unity. The, the, the unity exists within the uh, new creation kingdom because there's one body. There's not two bodies. There's not Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other. There's one body in the church. We are the one single body of Christ. And there's one spirit. There's one Holy Spirit. And because there's one Holy Spirit, there's one people of God. So we should work to maintain the unity that's created by the one spirit. Uh, and we are called to one hope. I mean, this strikes right at the face of a classic dispensationalism, which sees Jews on the one hand inheriting the new earth and Gentiles on their hand inheriting the new heaven. There's not two hopes. There's one hope. There's one new creation. And if there's one new creation, then there's one people of God. We don't have different destinations. We have one destination, which is the new creation kingdom when it's fully ushered in, where we live in the new heavens and new worlds recreated under King Jesus. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one king in the new creation kingdom. It's our one Lord. <clears throat> we have one faith. This probably isn't referring to subjective faith. Like, I feel a quality of faith. Like, I, I, like we talked about at the end of chapter 3. Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. Faith can both mean what I believe. Uh, or it can both mean that I believe. And it can mean the object of my belief. So it's probably shorthand for the gospel. Jude, Jude says the same thing in Jude 3, I think, when he says um, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints in Jude 3. So it's likely that Paul is just referring to the gospel here. There's one gospel, and if there's one gospel, then we need to be the united people of God. This is, the, again, the unity that was already created that we're being asked to maintain. One baptism. 
Is it spirit baptism or water baptism? What do you think? Water? Anyone say spirit? Maybe says spirit. I, can't, I don't think it can mean both. I think Paul means one thing. I think it's water baptism. I, it could go either way. The reason I think it's water baptism is because he already said there's one spirit in this list. If there's already one spirit, it doesn't make sense for him to say there's one spirit and there's one spirit baptism. I think there's one baptism, meaning that everyone in the covenant community, everyone in the new creation kingdom has experienced water baptism. That doesn't mean that there are some people in the church that haven't experienced spirit baptism. I think everyone has. However, I think that this is specifically talking about water baptism, which means it's a great text for believer's baptism and not pedo baptism, right? We're eager to maintain the unity that Christ died for. And every, if there's one baptism and everyone who has the one spirit, everyone who has the one hope, everyone who has the one baptism should be unified, then we'd expect only regenerate members to be in the new covenant community, right? Not some of them, that some of them were called to be united with in a special eternal way and some of them have a different outcome. I think it's a, a good text for calling people to only baptize regenerate people. Lastly, one God and Father over all. I think this is an allusion to the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul will reference the Shema elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, Romans, oh, it's eluding me. I can't remember. Paul will, throughout his letters, say things like there is one God or God is one or something like that. And always it's in the context of one people of God. Because there is one God, there is one people of God. Because there's one God and one Father, there is one people of God, not two, is what it's saying. We then get to Paul, once again, talking about the gift of grace that was given to him. According to Christ's gift, <clears throat> and we have probably, probably one of the hardest, not the hardest, New Testament use of the Old Testament quotations in the Bible. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. What's he quoting? Psalm 68, 18. But what's the problem? Do you remember? We talked about this in our hermeneutics class. What's the problem? Psalm 68, 18 does not say this. What does it say? He received gifts from men. Paul changes the verb. So the question is, does he change it on purpose? Does he change it accidentally? <clears throat> so some people think <clears throat> that Paul does not have the manuscript with him. So he's sitting in jail, and he's like, what does that verse say again? I think it's he gave gifts to men. And he just forgot. There are actual conservative scholars who think that. That's option one. Option two is that uh, Paul is... Uh, um, Paul is intentionally changing the verb, um, but it's based upon a, a Jewish tradition where Moses ascended Sinai and the gift that was given was the law. And we do have a Jewish commentaries of Psalm 68, which, which indicate that, uh, that there, there was a tradition of reading Psalm 68 and remembering the Moses story. And, and it's, this is, and there's actually some, it sounds weird at first, but there's some strong possibilities because there's a lot of similarities between Sinai and Pentecost, if you read those two stories together. They, 
um, Pentecost was actually the three months after the deliverance from Egypt. It was to remember the giving of the law at Sinai. Um, the apostles are in the upper room where they experience the rushing wind and fire. Really similar language to what we see on top of Mount Sinai. It's, and you have the, the mediator who ascends on high and then sent, brings the gift down. And this is the most interesting one. How many souls get saved in Acts chapter 2? 3,000. How many people, and it says they're cut to the heart. How many people die from the golden calf event in Exodus 32? 3,000. Interesting. So it could be, it could be that Paul sees a parallel between Sinai and Pentecost, and he's saying that Moses gave the law, but Jesus gives the Spirit. It could be that. I'm not wholly convinced. Option three. Paul has a text that we have no record of, and he's referring to that. I'm less than persuaded by that. Option four, I haven't heard anyone else say this. This is straight Josh Pinnell for you, so take it or leave it. I think Paul intentionally changes the verb to show the graciousness of the new covenant. To show the graciousness of the new covenant. Because in Psalm 68, what's in mind is the building of the tabernacle and temple. And God received gifts from men in order to build the tabernacle and temple. He received gifts of stone and gifts of wood. Remember all the stories? And, and all the tribes come together. And even in the king's story, when the temple is made, we're getting cedar all the way from Lebanon. Like, we're getting all kinds of people from all over working together to build this temple. And God receives gifts from men. But in the new covenant, to build the new covenant temple, God doesn't receive gifts. He gives gifts. God does not receive gifts to build the new covenant temple. He gives gifts to, give, to build the new covenant temple. And the gifts that he gives are not wood and linen and stone and gold and silver. It's leadership gifts to the church. He gives leadership gifts to the church for the purpose of building the new covenant temple. Uh, when it says he ascended, what does it mean? But then he also descended into the lower regions of the earth confusing, debates rage. Is he saying that there's a part of the earth that Jesus descended to that's the lowest part of the earth? It could be. Or it could be that he's saying that he descended to the lower regions, which is the earth. He's saying that he went from heaven to earth, which I think is most likely, given the context of Ephesians, he's talking about uniting heaven and earth language. Again, the ascension is a picture of someone from earth being in heaven, and heaven and earth ultimately, it gives us hope that heaven and earth are going to unite. So I think that it's, it's looking at the ascension from the backwards way also and saying that not only did someone from earth go to heaven, but someone from heaven came to earth. And heaven and earth are ultimately not opposed to one another. And new creation kingdom proves this. Uh, and the result is that he might fill all things. Again, this is a very optimistic view of the success of the kingdom. It's very reminiscent of the end of chapter 1 with he, uh, the church which is his body, which is filling every place in every way. The intent of Christ in the giving of the gifts is that the kingdom would spread all over the world. The new creation kingdom, everyone would experience it. He wants to fill every place in every way. And he does it through building a new creation kingdom temple and by giving leadership gifts. And the leadership gifts to the church are given for the purpose of expanding the, the Garden of Eden around the world, the new creation kingdom temple uh, around the world. He then lifts the gifts, lists the gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. In, in short, because we don't have much time here, the apostles are the sent ones. 
And that we have more apostles in the New Testament than just the original 12 apostles. Epaphroditus, um, Barnabas, Silas. Um, Jesus is even called an apostle, the apostle of your faith in Hebrews. I think it's Hebrews chapter 2. Um, apostle simply, what's that? Yeah, James also, who's the brother of Jesus, but he's not one of the twelve. In fact, James didn't even believe in Jesus when he was on earth. It was afterwards that he was converted, because his brothers didn't even believe in him, is what the text says. Um, what's that? We're not going to talk about that today. That's too much. we got, we, we got to stay on focus, but it's a good question. Um, in short, I think apostles are church planters. I think apostles are church planters. People who bring the gospel to new places where it's never been. The first time we see apostles in, um, in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 10. Um, in Acts, we see apostles as Barnabas and Paul are both being sent out. Consistently, it's in reference to people who go with the message of Christ and plant churches. Now, there are, there's, un, there's a unique sense in which the 12 stand above the other apostles. I agree with that. However, uh, the apostolic ministry of the New Testament, I think it's hard, I think it's hard to argue, um, given the number of apostles that we have in the New Testament, that they are, um, that they are only authoritative witnesses of Jesus. I think Barnabas is a, is a great example of someone who likely did not witness the life of Christ. He's not one of the twelve, yet he's given the gift of apostleship. Um, <clears throat> prophets, I think, again, is New Testament prophets. So that we have to read it consistently of apostles and prophets throughout. These are people who receive confirmatory, revelatory gifts frequently. They attest to apostolic writings or New Testament document writings. Um, not in ways that are as authoritative as those New Testament writings, but in ways that confirm it. And so while Paul, while Paul believes that all believers in the New Covenant can prophesy in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, uh, as fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, and as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, he thinks all believers can prophesy. Prophecy is not something restricted to apostles in 1 Corinthians 14. First Corinthians, for the church in Corinth, who's the apostle of the church in Corinth? It's Paul because he, he planted the church. But um, every member, he wants every member of the church to prophesy. It, can't, it cannot be authoritative. And Paul is able to tell prophets, stop prophesying like this. Prophesy like this. <laughs> it's nonsensical, I think, if it, this is authoritative special revelation that's intended for all the church. And we don't have any written documents of New Testament prophecy. New Testament prophecy, I think, functions very, very differently than Old Testament prophecy. The, the New Testament prophets... Uh, in the sense of Old Testament, in, in the sense of, if we're going to compare anything in the New Testament to Old Testament prophets, it's going to be the apostles writing the New Testament. <clears throat> Next, we have evangelists. And when we think of evangelists, we tend to think of people who share the gospel. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. I don't think that's what an evangelist is. Or, in my context, a lot of times, when you think of evangelists, you think of someone who's like an itinerant preacher, you're probably familiar with these guys who call themselves evangelists. And what it means is they just go around to a bunch of different churches and preach sermons at those churches. And usually it's a sermon that's meant to kind of bring revival back into the congregation. But, but Paul has in mind here, uh, where, where he ends up going with this is verse 12, equipping saints for the work of ministry. The purpose of all these gifts is not um, 
their own, not existing for themselves. It's for the purpose of equipping saints. So I think evangelists in this text, we have to read it in the same light. Evangelists, I think, are people who teach how to share the gospel. If evangelists are people who equip the saints for the work of ministry, then they're people who help the church understand how to build the new creation kingdom temple, how to bring it around the world, and they teach them how to share the gospel in a way that's different than gifts of apostleship or pastors. So I think, I think if there are people in our churches who are uniquely gifted in sharing the gospel, we should have them teach the rest of our church how to do that. And again, good methodology. I think that's what this is teaching. The shepherds and teachers. Now, if you look at this in the original, we looked at this before, that between all these other gifts, there's the, the, the word te. Te and kai can both mean and. And I'm sorry, de. De, I think Paul uses de here. De and kai can both mean and. And he's using de in between each one of these other um, gifts for the purpose of showing that they're different gifts. But I think when he gets to pastor and teacher, he uses kai to show that they're one gift. It's a single gift, the gift of pastor-teacher in the church. Pastor means shepherd. The word is the word for shepherd, um, which brings with it all kinds of Old Testament imagery of the bad shepherds, the good shepherds, who were the religious leaders of Israel, Moses, who was the shepherd, God, who was the shepherd of David, David, who was the shepherd for Israel. It, it all has to do with leadership roles in the church, it all has to do with um, guiding God's people. Along, Moses and Aaron were shepherded by God, and they were the ones who shepherded the people through the wilderness. So guiding God's people between the day of redemption and the day of promised land. That's the role of shepherd, is making sure that all the sheep make it. Leading them to green pastures and still waters, restoring their souls. And, and as we are shepherds, it's important to remember that we are first sheep and then shepherds. We're primarily sheep. We're secondarily shepherds. And so our, our role as shepherds of feeding the sheep, as, Paul said, or as Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. Our role of leading to green pastures and still waters and restoring souls through the gospel is done as we also receive the same from Christ. And we lead the church like Moses and Aaron led the church in the wilderness. We lead the church also um, as God leads us, not in a different direction. Like the, the authority that rests in shepherds, the authority that rests in pastors is a, a submissive authority. It's an authority that follows where God is already leading his people and says, like Moses, oh, the pillar of smoke? Oh, the pillar of fire is lifting up and going that way. Let's go with it. We've, we only lead people where God is leading us, where God is leading the church. But it's not only leadership. It's not only, it's not only leadership giftings. It's also teaching giftings as well. So we lead people to the gospel. We lead people to Christ. We lead people to the promised land. But we also teach them along the way too. And I think this mirrors Paul's dual ministry of both preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ and in teaching the mystery earlier. And here's the purpose of the gifts. Okay. If, you, if you think about leadership, good leadership versus bad leadership in your church, bad, what does bad leadership do with their authority in your experience? What does bad leadership do with their authority? Abuse it. Yeah, lords over. What else? 
Yeah, that's great. They're the only minister. That's good. What does good leadership do, according to Ephesians 4.12? They equip the saints for the work of ministry. What's that? Yeah, to unite them. That's exactly right. So this is your job as a pastor. Your job as a pastor is not to do all the ministry yourself. Did you know that? If you're doing, if you, if you sit back one day and you say, I'm exhausted, I'm doing all the ministry, I'm doing all the work, look in the mirror for who's at fault. <laughs> you're the one at fault. If you're so busy that you're, and you're doing all the ministry and you just don't have time for anything else and you're exhausted and you say, I can't do all this ministry, look at Ephesians 4.12. Your job is to equip the saints to do ministry. They do the ministry. If you go to a church, and uh, maybe there's a church revitalization, or you're asked to come on as a pastor at a church, something like that, and they ask you, you know, is there anything you want to address the church with? Or maybe your first sermon at a, at a, at a new church. I think this is a great first sermon for a new church. Is it, what can you expect from me, and what can I expect from you? What you can expect from me is that I'm going to equip you. And what I can expect from you is that your guys are going to do the ministry. <laughs> now, you're not going to just go off and do the ministry without me helping you. I'm going to equip you to do it as best I can. I'm going to help you do it. But I'm not the one who does all the ministry here. It's the saints. And that's what good leadership does. Good leadership delegates. Good leadership doesn't hog all the responsibility or he gives it out. I mean, that's why we're doing this pastor's college. I mean, Michael's exhausted, isn't he? <laughs> Michael has too much to do. He needs Ethiopian men equipped to help lead this church. Or Kenyan men, or Somali men, or American men, or whatever it ends up being, right? Like, he needs people to help him. So that's, that's the role we're doing here, is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And that's what we need to do with every aspect of the church. I mean, the, um, Betty and her doing the, the ladies' ministry, that's, that's an example of that. You, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, or Michael uh, training A.B. in how to do gospel-centered worship leading. I mean, A.B.'s already a gifted musician, but as he grows in gospel centrality, he becomes so much more able to, to minister to the church as Michael has equipped him in gospel centrality and theology and things like that. And the result is the building up of the body of Christ. The church is built up. Um, it, it's, it's a, I, the, I don't like the way that the ESV translated it here. It, it's actually two pictures. It's, um, as I looked at on my ESV, this doesn't tell me. The, it's, it's for the building of the body. I'm sorry, it's for the building, which is the body. The building, which is the body. He's combining both the temple and the body metaphors here in this text, if you look at it in the original. We do it to equip the saints who are both the building and the body. I think is what Paul is saying. Until, verse 13, until. All of the gifts in verse 11 exist in the church until we attain the knowledge of the Son of God and unity of faith. So I, I think... What, what this ends up looking like practically to have these gifts continuing can be messy, especially when there are false apostles and false prophets in your context. However, because this says that these gifts exist until we attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, 
And because there's no division between the gifts of apostle and pastor, we have to say that those gifts continue to exist in the church today. And the goal, the goal is that we equip the saints with the result of unity of the faith. Again, this is in reference to the gospel. Unity around the gospel. Just as there is one faith and one baptism, so there is unity around the one faith. This is not unity necessarily in secondary issues or tertiary issues, but it's unity around the gospel. Now, what, what we're building people into is a united belief that Jesus has come, died for our sins, and we will one day live with him. That's what we're building people into unity around. We're not building people into unity around leadership, around giftings, or anything like that. And nothing, where it's tempting is when we are, where it, we get off track is when we start to make things that are less than the gospel the most important thing. Unity around how we dress. Unity around what we look like. Unity around what songs we sing or don't sing. Or even, this is, you'll get churches, at least in my context, I can't speak as well into yours, but churches who are like unified around homeschooling. You know what that's like, right, James? Like, like homeschooling is like the issue. Like, like, and uh, we're unified around that. It's like, okay, that's fine. Like, I mean, we, we homeschool our daughter. But we don't build people into the unity of homeschooling. Or, you know, unity around anything other than the gospel. All these things are secondary or tertiary things. All right, this is a big one. Unity around six-day literal creationism. Like, people build their entire ministry on reading Genesis 1 as a literal six days. Now, I read it like that, but I'm not working to build people to be a united church around that. I mean, there are whole ministries that say that's the foundation of our faith. And if the foundation falls, then we'll all, we'll all fall. Literally, like exegeting texts that have nothing to do with the six days of creation is applying to that. Or, or what's that? Worship, Worship what? Worship and songs, yeah. What's another way you see this in your context? United around things that are less than the gospel. United around speaking in tongues. That's, that, that's a great one. Yeah. Yeah, the five points of Calvinism. Well said. The gospel is much more than the five points of Calvinism. Anything we, we unite people around that's less than the gospel is giving people false hope and false, false unity. And it's not sinking them in the thing they need to be most united around. And it's not doing the job of a pastor. You see, the job of a pastor is just to equip the saints for the work of ministry with the trajectory, with the end game of being united around the gospel. That's what we're going towards, and that's what we need to sink people deeply into. The knowledge of the Son of God, you know, I, think, I think this is intellectual knowledge, but experiential knowledge as well, is what Paul has just talked about, knowing the love of Christ. We push people towards that in unity around Christ, not us. An example of this is... Um, when Moses dies and Joshua comes to leadership, I think that if you're if if there's a 
a transition in leadership at a church, I think Joshua is a great book to preach through. Because one of the main themes of Joshua is, will God be with Joshua just like he's been with Moses? And the answer the whole book gives is yes. But when a church is united around a single leader and not around the gospel, when, when the leadership transitions, half the church leaves. Because really, we just thought that guy had a great personality. We, we weren't really invested in the gospel he was preaching. We just kind of liked the way he talked, or the way he made me feel. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until the church looks like Jesus, these gifts are necessary. And it's a maturing, these leadership gifts are given to guide and mature the church so that they can look like Jesus. Are we there yet? No. This is the positive side. The positive side, the positive goal. Next is the negative. So this is what we're going towards. This is what we want to be. Now we get what we don't want to be. Why are these leadership gifts given? So that we be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. The leadership gifts are given for the purpose of and until the church is no longer assaulted by false teaching. It, there's a mixed metaphor here. Do you see it? It's kind, of, it's kind of funny, at least when you picture it. I, I think this is just kind of a side note, but we don't want to be children. We want to be grown up. We want to be grown up. But the, we want to be children who are tossed to and fro by, wind, by waves and winds. Like, first you think of like an, an infant. Then you think of the infant who, kids are already bad at walking. Isn't that true, Brian? Like you would think, like two things you should be really good at is sitting and walking, and kids can't do either. Kids cannot walk, and kids can't sit. Like somehow you're sitting in a chair and you fall out of the chair, and I have no clue how you just fell out of that chair right Like, like literally this is the easiest thing in the entire world to do, is you just sit. And it's not even like you're on the edge of the chair, you're wiggling, just all of a sudden you just fall out. Now, I don't know how that happens. The kids are also like, they're really bad at walking. It's like, just put one foot in front of the other. And even after you learn how to walk, they, they trip all the time, and things like this, but on top of, and part of it is because their heads are massive. Like, you know, kids' heads grow faster than the rest of their bodies, and so when they, like, a lot of times their heads are going to be so big that it just kind of leads the rest of them. It's hilarious. But on top of the fact that kids are already bad at walking and sitting, Paul, it almost makes you feel like the, the, the kid who's bad at walking is on top of this ship that's being tossed back and forth. That's the picture. Do you see it? Tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine, by human crafting, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Like that's the picture of that's the picture of false teaching in the church, is that it causes you to be tossed back and forth, or may, maybe not just the result of false teaching that's been around for a while, like the prosperity gospel. Like that causes people to be tossed back and forth, like emotionally and spiritually and all kinds of things. But it, the picture is also that we're not, we're, we, we're not subject to every new doctrine that comes out. Every new theological teaching. Like, have you read this book? This guy says something that no one else has ever said. If he says something that no one else has ever said, maybe that should give you pause. Instead, we need to unify people around the gospel. And the gospel is what will cause people to not be tossed back and forth and to and fro. And instead, we cause them to grow up into Christ, in verse 15. We cause them to grow, we cause the children who are being tossed to and fro to, be grow, to grow up into Jesus, who's the head. And how do we do that? How do we help people grow into Christ? By speaking the truth in love. 
Again, the, the truth that we saw in Ephesians 1 is the gospel. You've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So as we lovingly preach the gospel to one another, we help them to attain unity of the faith, to not be assaulted by false teaching, and to grow into Jesus Christ. Again, though, these leadership giftings are nowhere in these leadership giftings are they an ends in themselves and a means of glorifying self. Instead, they pass along leadership. They say, you go and you equip the saints for the work of ministry. You, do, you all do the ministry as I pass it along. And it's all about growing people into unity around the gospel, unity of the faith. All about growing people into Christ who is the head. And all about... Uh, all about... Um, all about speaking the truthfulness of the gospel in a loving way to one another. So if you, as you preach the gospel every single week faithfully, and as you counsel people with the gospel, and as you disciple people with the gospel, you're doing this equipping work. You're doing this grow, grow into Christ work. And then we, we get the end of the picture of the head. The whole body is joined to the head. And the body builds itself up in love. love, love loving speech, which is gospel-centered speech. Okay. Any questions on that? Great. In the next pericope, starting in verse 17, he testifies in the Lord. So he gets back to the same command that we started verse 4 with, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Again, it's not walking in a way that merits or earns the calling of the gospel, but instead it's to walk in a way that's worthy of it. And this time he, he speaks of it uh, in reference to don't walk like the Gentiles. And the, the picture that he gets here to the end of 5 verse 2, and you can look at the, the outline up there, is that the new creation kingdom is characterized by a new humanity and not an old humanity. The old humanity is the way the Gentiles conduct their lives. The old humanity is how you used to act, how you used to live your life. But now, instead, you're part of the new humanity. You're part of the new creation kingdom. So live in light of the new humanity is what he's going to say. Don't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And we, we noted this earlier that all of this is intellectual language. They're darkened in their understanding, futility of their minds. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. And all of it comes down to their hardness of heart. It's, a, it's an intellectual hardness towards God that is sourced in our affections. Our affections want something other than what God wants, and that causes us to be hard to God. So again, what God must overcome in our salvation is not just the world and the flesh. I'm sorry, not just the world and the devil, but also our own passions, our own desires. We used the illustration of Augustine earlier in the pairs, that our affections are what keep us bound. And in order for us to be set free to love God rightly, we must be set free in our affections. Like Joshua told the people, the people Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house will serve the Lord. And the people said, yes, we will serve him. And Joshua said, you can't, because God has not given you a heart to love him yet. The, the biggest problem people have is not intellectual. This, what this means is it helps us define faith. Faith is not simply intellectual assent. Faith is the experience of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as this given to you by the Spirit. 
It's a holistic transformation. It doesn't just mean that my mind has been convinced of arguments for God. It means that my whole being is responding rightly to who God is in Christ. They're callous, and they've given themselves over to every greedy practice and every kind of impurity. Again, it doesn't mean that every unbeliever practices every sin possible, but it does mean that our affections are bent towards every kind of sin. Which, again, reminds us that even if we didn't sin like other people did before we were Christians, we still had the same wicked heart. We still had the same tendencies towards those same sins. And how does Paul correct that? When he says, don't live like them, don't walk like the Gentiles do, don't walk like the old humanity does, he says that's not how you learn Jesus. It's not how you learned Christ. Now, he doesn't say that's not how you learn the gospel. He doesn't refer to a message here. He refers to a person. You see it? It's not how you learned Jesus. It's like Jesus being a subject that you can learn and study in both his work and his person, his personality. You didn't learn Jesus Christ that way. Instead, Jesus is very different than all of that. And when you learned Jesus, you learned to not walk like the Gentiles do. Yeah, Mikey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it is possible for Christians to walk like Gentiles. I think it is possible for Christians to conduct their life like unbelievers. And the the remedy for that is that's not the way you learned Christ. We we go to one another and we say we don't we don't go to one another and say stop it. We don't say, what's wrong with you? And slap them. We say, brother, that's not the way you learn Jesus. Do you remember Jesus? Do you remember the gospel? Do you remember what Christ is like? Do you remember what he did for you? The answer, I think the answer, again, is preaching the gospel. Good question. And I do, I do think that 1 John would let us know that ultimately anyone who's a Christian is going to have a lifestyle pattern of following Jesus more than not. We do have examples of otherwise, like Lot. And Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah, but his heart was vexed every day. What was, the ev- what was the fruit in Lot's life? It was not fruit he did. It was fruit he felt. You remember, you, does that make sense? It was not fruit he did. It was fruit he felt. Paul's, or Lot's soul was vexed every single day. How do you know Lot was a Christian? Because his soul was vexed. So I think we need to have some kind of category for, for those kind of Christians. I don't think it's the norm, but I think we do need to have mercy towards people and knowing that even if I don't see this external fruit, trusting that, that the Lord is working in their hearts. And they're going to be brought out of Sodom before judgment comes, like Lot. Uh, well, there were more sins in Sodom besides that. But yeah, I, I don't think that he was. Um, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him that the truth is in Jesus Again, this is probably evidence of this being a circular letter. But again, Paul goes back to the gospel. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Why? Because you heard something different when you heard the gospel. And then he gets on to this put off, put on metaphor. We'll cover this more quickly, but we're to put off the old humanity and put on the new humanity. 
And this is what they were told when they heard Jesus, to put off your old self. I, I, think, the, I think, Brian, is yours translated the old man? Probably, yeah. So the word is anthropos. The word is humanity. And I understand why it says old self, but I think that blurs and confuses the new creation language that you're supposed to see in this text. It's put off the, it's like, what he's saying is put off Adam and put on Jesus. Put off the old humanity and put on the new creation kingdom humanity. Put off the old man and put on Christ. Put off Adam and put on Jesus. And it's not just put off and put on. But verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He's calling them to more than just lifestyle change. He's calling them to deep change, a change of thinking. And this new humanity, he uses creation language also. You see it in verse 24, put on the new humanity created after the likeness of God. I mean, that's all creation. That's all Genesis 1 and 2 language, created an image of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is, this is going, and there's a debate in, in when this happens or how this happens, but I, I do think it's, con, it's consistent both with Paul's theology in other letters and with the, the verbs that are used here to say that this is an ongoing process that all believers will do as we consistently and consciously put off the old humanity and put on the new humanity. Now remember the three steps. What were the three steps that Paul said in putting in, in verses 22 through 24? We do what? Put off, be renewed, and put on. Can everyone say that? Put off, be renewed, put on. Can everyone say that? Put off, be renewed, put on. Emmanuel knows I'm looking right at him. Okay, so what are the three things again? Put off, be renewed, put on. I mean, memorize this. This is, this is what helps you in counseling. This is what helps you in pastoral ministry. Now, what people forget is the renewed part. Because that's the hardest part. That's the part that hits the deep affection level. That's the part that hits the root sins and not the fruit sins. And I think that Paul mentions all three of those steps in every one of these, if you look at it. Put away falsehood. What, what step is that? Put off. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. What is that? Be re- no. Put on. And then he says, because we're members of one another. That's, re- that's be renewed, right? Change the way you think about it. Like, get beyond just this fruit stuff and get at what's actually going on in the heart. And maybe the reason, if you, if you lie to your neighbor, if you lie to your fellow Christians, maybe it's because you've forgotten we're all part of the same spiritual family. You see, Paul is getting way beyond just the act of lying, and he wants to hit the heart. Why are you lying? Is it because you've forgotten we're all part of the same family? Why would you lie to your family member? Why would you lie to your brother? Why would you lie to your sister? We're all part of the same family. We're all part of the one people of God. When you get angry, do not sin. Okay, what is, it, is, that, what is he saying there? Put off, renew, or put on? Put off. Put off sinning when you get angry. We already talked about the implications of that, so we'll, we'll go past that. But in short, he separates the actual, our responses to our anger from the emotion of anger. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's put on, right? It means don't go to bed angry. He's saying when you get angry, be under control. Don't respond with, with sinfulness when you get angry. And be so under control that when you go to bed at night, you're not going to bed angry. 
And why? Give no opportunity for the devil. That's the change of mind. That's the renewing your mind. Don't you realize the word that's used here for opportunity is tapos. You, you know what a top, topographical map is? It's, it, it's a map that shows you elevation change. The word he's using here for, as tapas, he's, he means don't give a place. This is war language. Don't give ground to Satan. Because when you go to bed early, or when you go to bed, no, going to bed early is good, but when you go to bed angry, you give ground in your heart to Satan. Satan takes further ground. He gets closer to taking you over. Because he works on kind of bitterness in your heart. Don't let the thief steal, put off. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. That's put on, right? And you know, the opposite of stealing is not not stealing. The opposite of stealing is working hard. And then he gets to the heart of it, that you may give to those who have need. The, the act of stealing is an ultimately selfish act because you're thinking of yourself more than others. And the renewing of the mind that needs to happen is you need to stop being a selfish person with your money. It's not enough to to stop stealing. Instead, you need to become generous because the opposite of stealing is generosity. Uh, he talks about corrupting talk. Don't let it come out of your mouth. as put off. But only such as good as for building up. Again, he's using building language there. It's the temple. You're building the temple with your words. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Well, how do you need to change, your mind, uh, change the way you think about your words? You need to realize that your words have the same power that raise people from the dead. Your words have the power to give grace. Your words have the power to build up the church and cause it, through your encouraging words, to prosper. And then don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God because when you use words that cut people down instead of build them up, you're working against what God is doing in His new creation kingdom to spread it around the world. And you were sealed to the day of redemption with this Holy Spirit. So then he, he lists the kinds of sins we do when we get angry. Bitterness is anger we hold on, hold on to when we go to bed angry night after night after night after night. You know, bitterness, this is, this is a helpful way I've, thought, I've heard it expressed before. Bitterness is the only poison that we drink hoping that others will get sick. Bitterness is the only poison that we drink hoping that others will get sick. Because who gets sick when you're bitter? You. Bitterness does not hurt the other person. Bitterness hurts you. When you go to bed angry and you hold anger against a person day after day after day and year after year after year, it doesn't affect them. They're probably actually pretty confused about why you're yelling at them all the time <laughs> or why you don't want to talk to them anymore. It hurts you, not them. Um, wrath is outbursts of anger. Wrath is uncontrolled anger that results in throwing things and hitting people, things like that. Uh, clamor. Clamor is uh, outbursts of angry words in response to your anger. Slander is thought, thoughtful lies or even things that are true about someone to ruin their reputation. I want to ruin that person's reputation, so I'm going to say things that will do it. It may be true, it may not be true, but is it necessary to speak about? You, know, you, you don't have to say bad things about people, even if it's true. Gossip isn't defined by truthfulness or not. Gossip is defined by trying to ruin a person's reputation in the community. And if, you, if you're saying words that ruin a person's reputation intentionally, you're slandering them. You're sinning. Uh, be put away with all kinds of malice and instead be kind. He addresses the heart again. 
You need to be tender-hearted to one another. And you need to forgive people like God forgave you in Christ, which is freely, with no strings attached. He, gets, he then gets on to uh, darkness and light, starting in verse 3. Um, and he especially addresses sexual ethics here. So in the old humanity, new humanity, he talks about all kinds of ethics, but he has especially in mind sexual ethics. So sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness. Now, why does he say covetousness here? Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Must not be named among you. Why does he say covetousness? Yeah, I think that's true. But I don't think he's talking about covetousness in general. I think he's talking about sexual covetousness. Like wishing you had someone else's wife. Or wishing you had someone else's girlfriend. Wishing that someone else was yours. It must not be named among you, because it's not proper for the saints. It must not be named among you one single time. And then he gets, he gets beyond sexual acts and, and uh, coveting other people. He then gets to our language and the way we talk about sex. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. He says don't joke about sex. Don't let there be any filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. Do you, do you joke about sex lightly with your friends? Do you use sexual innuendo, innuendos to, to laugh with your friends about sex? What's the answer to that? The answer here is thanksgiving. <clears throat> do you see it? The opposite is thanksgiving. <laughs> if, if you're tempted, or you do, joke about sex, or talk about sex in inappropriate ways, Work on cultivating thanksgiving in your heart. <clears throat> if you're married, especially gratefulness for your own wife. And then uh, he concludes it with, for you must be sure that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or is covetousness, which is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, this is new creation kingdom language. You're not part of the new creation kingdom if you're a person who is characterized by these things. Or at least that's not who you're meant to be. He's not saying you're automatically kicked out or you lose your salvation, but he is saying it's inconsistent with the new creation kingdom life. It's darkness, not light. And then he goes to no one, let no one deceive you with empty words because, of, because the, for these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Do you joke about the things that God is going to send people to hell for? Don't be deceived because this is not a light thing. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And he finally brings it down to what he's been talking about. You're not darkness. You're not part of the old creation. You're part of the new creation. So live as light. Live as children of the light. For what is a qual the quality of light is not sexual immorality. The quality of light is purity righteousness and truthfulness and discern what's pleasing to the Lord. So don't take part in their unfruitful works of darkness. Don't joke about sex. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't covet someone else's wife. 
Instead, expose them. That's what light does naturally, right? Light naturally exposes darkness. And why do we do this? Because, let's be honest, it's shameful. It's a, it should be a shameful thing to joke about or talk about the sexual things people do in secret. And if it's not shameful, it should be shameful. We shouldn't talk about it. It shouldn't be a topic of a conversation. Yeah? Uh, that's, that's a good question. So the question is, how do we expose? Do we expose by naming the sin and calling it out? Or do we expose just by being the light? Because light, just by the virtue of being light, exposes. It, it could refer to just being light instead of darkness. Right? And so, by contrast, we expose. It could mean we call out the sin. It could mean that we just preach the gospel and the light of the gospel shines into that. But a lot of that has to do with who you think the people who do the unfruitful works of darkness are. Who is, he taught, who is doing the unfruitful works of darkness? Is it Christians or non-Christians? Now, the argument for non-Christians is obvious. Like, they're doing the works of darkness, not the works of light. But the, wor- the, the argument for Christians is that they're doing them in secret. When was the last time you knew someone who was not a Christian, who was practicing sexual morality, who didn't brag about it? Like, they brag about how many girls they've slept with, haven't, don't they? They don't do it in secret. They don't, want, they don't watch pornography in secret. They talk about it and joke about it with their friends. So I think it's difficult, but I think it's most likely that we're talking about Christians who are walking in darkness instead of light. And the call to them is to remember the resurrection power that we talked about in chapter 2. Anything that comes to light is visible. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's hope for every Christian, even a Christian who's not living out the new creation kingdom lifestyle, and instead is living in darkness. That once again, just like Christ resurrected you from the dead in chapter 2, Christ will resurrect you from the dead again. He will shine his light on you once again. I think that's what it's talking about. So I think it's... If that's the case, it's calling out, going to our brothers and saying to them, that's not how you learned Christ. You're walking in darkness. You're not walking in the light. I think that's what it's talking about. But it's difficult. It's very difficult. So that gets to the end of the third one, or the second one, the the darkness versus light. So first, it was old humanity versus new humanity. Then it's darkness versus light. And now he's going to talk about foolishness versus wisdom. Live the wise way of life, not the foolish way of life. So look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And, and he characterizes the old creation as, a, as foolishness and the new creation as wisdom. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, how do you use your time? Use your time in a way that keeps in mind that we live in the last days and these are evil times? Or do you use your time in a way that forgets that? Do you use your time for the new creation kingdom, or do you use it for yourself? I mean, I think if you guys are here right now, you're using it for the new creation kingdom. Like, that's why you're in class 25 hours a week, and that's why you're reading all these books. I don't want you to feel condemned by that, because especially with how we use our time, like, no one, if, if, you, if you talk to someone about how do you use your time, they tend to respond to that with, oh, I could probably use it better, meaning, I can't believe I watched that 30-minute TV show. I should not have used my time like that. When I think God would say, uh, brother, you, you should rest. <laughs> You're working really hard in class. 
But if you're being lazy in your studies and you're not, you're not giving it your all, uh, you should be asking, how, am I making the best use of my time? Because the days are evil. Like, the evil is out there. And we're in the last days. And we need to use our time in a wise way. And use our, use our time for things that are part of the new creation kingdom and not for ourselves. Therefore, do not be foolish. Do not be part of the old creation, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What's the will of the Lord? What's the will of the Lord in Ephesians? If you're using your time not for the glory of God, instead, the remedy to that is to remember what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, to unite all things in Christ. If you're struggling with laziness, not using your time the right way, the answer is not to beat yourself up. The answer is not to memorize Bible verses about laziness. That can help, certainly. But the answer is to remember that God is bringing the new creation kingdom. And only what's done for that kingdom is going to matter in the end. And do not get drunk with wine. Okay, so that's, that's foolishness again. Remember, we're contrasting foolishness with wisdom. Don't get drunk. That's the foolish way of living. That's the way of living that forgets the new, new creation kingdom. Why? Because there's debauchery in that. There's, there's the foolish way of living. Like when you get drunk, you act like a, like a crazy person, like a foolish person. You see drunk people walking down the side of the street that can't even walk straight. They say crazy things. They do stupid things. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. So the, the imagery is clear. In the, in the same way that too much alcohol controls you, you need the Spirit to control you. This is actually, there's, there's another time in the Bible when the Spirit is compared to drunkenness also. Do you remember when that is? Acts 2? I, I just think that's interesting. I'm not saying that when you're filled with the Spirit you act like a drunk person, but I am saying that there's a connection between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit in the Bible. That when you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit is controlling you in the same way that wine controls you. Too much wine controls you or, or influences you. And what does it look like when you're filled with the Spirit in this text? It doesn't look like speaking in tongues. It doesn't look like prophecy. It doesn't look like anything like that. Paul never talks about any of those kinds of gifts. I mean, he talks about prophet, the gift of prophets, obviously. But he doesn't talk about prophecy in this book like he does in other books. It looks like us addressing one another in psalms and hymns. And maybe, maybe this is the one reference to prophecy, spiritual songs. In the original, it's songs from the Spirit. Songs that come from the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, then you'll sing songs that come from the Spirit. So that might look very simply like, have you ever just been, have you ever just sang a song that you never heard before and it was just gratefulness to God for what He's done for you in Christ? I've done that. Just all of a sudden, you just find yourself singing a song you never heard before and gratefulness to God. Or it could be that it's prophetic impressions that are expressed in songs that are given to the church. But anyway, all, all these singing is addressing the church and for the purpose of building up the church. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Second, we give thanks when we're filled with the Spirit. We become grateful people. Not cynical people, but grateful people. For everything. Not for some things, even the difficult things in life. We give, great, we give thanks to God for. And then lastly, we submit to one another. We don't, we don't seek... Uh, to promote ourselves or to bring our own authority to bear in every situation. But when we're filled with the Spirit, when we're Spirit-filled people, we're, we gladly submit to the preferences of others. 
Which then gets into the, the next question is how does verse 21 relate to the next section? <clears throat> so the NIV, does anyone have an NIV? <clears throat> you have a TNIV? Okay, where does the paragraph heading change? Or actually, they, they do a really interesting thing. They put verse 21 not with either of the two paragraphs, right? Yeah, let me open up my NIV. Ephesians 5.21. Oh, no, here they're putting it with, they put it with the next paragraph. So, clearly, verse, but yours is different? Yours is separated? Mm-hmm. They're different. So, here, this is the question. Yes, everyone agrees a fruit of the Spirit, a, a, an evidence of being filled with the Spirit, is that you submit to one another. That's an evidence of being filled with the Spirit. But the submitting to one another have implications for the household code. Because if it does, does that mean that husbands are meant to submit to wives? That's the question. Because if we're supposed to all submit to one another, does that mean that husbands are meant to submit to wives? Now, it's not as easy as you might think, because do you see the first command in verse 22? Wives, submit to your husbands. And th this is something, like, I'm as complementarian as they come. I am a strong complementarian. However, I think this is a battle that complementarians fight that they don't need to fight. I think Paul uses verse 21 both to end the previous section and to begin the next. I think there are implications for submitting to one another. We, we need to submit to one another. And then he talks about what submitting to one another looks like in the home. But that doesn't mean that all submission is equal. Or the ways that husbands submit to wives is the same way that wives submit to husbands. Now, you might be uncomfortable with what I'm saying right now, but I think if you just stick with me, you'll get what I'm saying. Wives, you know, wives are the only ones who are called to submit. Wives are the only ones that are called to submit. Husbands are not called to submit. Slaves and children are also not called to submit. And wives are called to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Now, this is very strong language. Because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. It, it, the, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband in the same way that the church submits to Christ. In everything. So wives should submit to the husbands. But husbands are to love their wives. Husbands are to love their wives. And I think that if we understand what Paul means by that, we understand a little bit more what it means for all of us to submit to one another in love. Because a loving husband might want to lead his family, a husband might want to lead his family in one direction. And when he hears what his wife thinks or feels about it, he chooses to lead in a different direction. Because he loves her. Right, so where, where are we gonna, what are we going to eat for dinner tonight? You know what you really want? You really want Dorawat. You want Dorawat so bad, but she wants shawarma. Because she's right, right? Of course she wants shawarma. And maybe you've been thinking about Dorawat all day long, but then she has been thinking about shawarma all day long, and you say, okay, let's go get shawarma. Who made the decision, you or her? You did. And the wife is submitting to the decision, but you are leading in a way that is very considerate of your wife, that understands her preferences and her needs. You're the one who's leading, 
but you're doing it in a way that loves and cares for your wife. So what that might end up looking like is in more complicated situations than food is it might end up looking like, like, where do we live? What house do we live in? Now, you don't have to. You don't have to do what your wife wants. Because you're the one who's leading, and she's the one called to submit. However, listening to the preferences of your wife and leading your home in a way that gives deferences to the special temptations of your wife is a way of loving your wife, though you're still the leader of your home. Now, notice this. Husbands are not called to make their wives submit. If a wife is not submitting to the husband, whose fault is that? The wife's. It's not the husband's fault. It's not the husband's responsibility. If the wife is choosing not to submit, it does not reflect upon the husband's leadership in the home, necessarily. And this is freeing for husbands. If your wife isn't submitting, your job is not to make her submit. Your job is to love her. Your job is not to come and say, remember what Paul said? Submit! (laughs) Whatever that means. (laughs) That's not what you're called to do. You're called to love her. I mean, this this is... Part of being a good husband is also part of being a good adult, like a a good person and a good pastor. You're not responsible for other people and how they react. You're responsible for you. I mean, one of the biggest reasons people get angry is they forget that. They forget they're not responsible for the other person. When, When two kids are playing and one kid steals a toy from the other, and the kid that gets the toy stolen punches the other one in the face, and you say, why'd you do that? Well, because they stole it's not your business to fix the stealing, my friend. Your business is to take care of yourself and make sure you respond rightly to that bad situation. You're not called to make your wife submit. You're called to love her. And you know, you realize that uh, the love your wife section is much longer than the submit to your husband section. Now what is, what is the love? The love is the love of Christ. That's an impossible task. To love your wife like Christ loved the church. But it's, it's not only in degree, to the same degree that he loved his, his church. He's willing to die. He did die for her, so you need to be willing to die for your wife. But it's also in direction. He loves her with the direction of, of sanctifying her. So loving your wife looks like doing things. Sometimes she doesn't like, but you know it's going to sanctify her in the long run. Right? That, oftentimes, love doesn't look like what we want it to look like. And think, you wouldn't harm your own body. Christ doesn't harm his own body, so it's nonsensical to harm your wife. Next, children and parents. Children are called to obey their parents. The, the quotation from Exodus 20 is, when we translate it to the New Covenant context, it's likely in reference to, to inheriting eternal life in the new creation. The land typologically is fulfilled in the new creation. So you will have eternal life as you show that you're the kind of person who's in the new creation kingdom by loving your parents. It doesn't mean you gain eternal life by obeying your parents, but it does mean the kinds of children who have been transformed by the gospel are the kinds of children who obey their parents consistently. 
then uh, fathers are called to not provoke their children, which I think is, again, an example of submitting to one another in love. So, so fathers can discipline and lead their children however they want. They're the ones in charge of the child. But you need to do so in a way that doesn't intentionally provoke them to wrath. So again, this knows meaning the weaknesses of your children. So I don't, I don't interact with my two children the same way. Not because I don't love them, but because I know each one of them have special temptations when I do certain things. I know that what provokes August to becoming angry is not going to provoke Lily to becoming angry. I know vice versa. I know that the things that make Lily frustrated are not the things that make him frustrated. And this is only going to be seen more and more as they grow up. Like, and so I, I correct them. I, I um, parent them. I father them. But I do so in a way that's different for each child because I don't want to provoke them. In that sense, I'm submitting to them in love. I'm submitting to their own temptations, their own preferences, their own tendencies. But I'm still the one who leads. Lastly, slaves and masters. We've talked, we've talked a good, good bit about this. I will say in short, I don't think it's a right application to apply this to an employer-employee relationship. I think if you went to a first century slave and said, you know, this is like an employer-employee relationship, right? I think he'd laugh at you and say, no, it's nothing like that at all. <laughs> I'm bound to this person to work for him. Paul believes that the gospel is able to, to influence and penetrate every aspect and area of society, so much that he can even make it so that masters and slaves go to the same church. And they love one another. And the slave doesn't obey with eye service as a man pleaser. He obeys in reference to Christ. And the master is told, remember that Jesus is your Lord also. You are a slave to Christ. So treat your slave in the way that Christ treats you. Lastly, the whole armor of God. I'm not going to spend as much time here because you had your Martin Lloyd-Jones reading, which I think is excellent. In short, Paul is saying what he says in Romans 13, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. I, th I, think, that, um, I think that Paul has in mind political opposition and false teaching. Political opposition and false teaching. I don't think this is a text for what to do if you're exercising a demon. <laughs> or if they like some kind of demonic influence or something like that. Or I could ask it like this. I want you to imagine that, once again, a friend comes to you one day and, Salamno, Salamno, Indetno, Salamno, Indetno, Salamno, Indetno, Salamno, for like 20 minutes, right? And then, once that's done, once all that's done, you say to them, what have you done today? And they say to you, I just spent the last three hours in spiritual warfare. What do you picture that they did for the last three hours? I love it, yeah. What else did they do for the last three hours? Yeah, stuff like this, right? Speaking in tongues, things like that. That's what you picture. But that's not what Paul... Paul doesn't talk about that at all when he talks about spiritual warfare. I think that Paul has a radically different idea for what spiritual warfare is, and this is what I think it is. It's preaching the gospel. I think spiritual warfare is preaching the gospel. Because look at all the, the... First, he reminds them that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, which we already saw connected in Psalm 82. Uh, the spiritual beings are very closely tied to the political forces in this world. So when Paul saw political opposition to the church, he saw the powers behind it. 
He saw evil spirits behind it. So remember, your fight's not against Caesar. Your fight is with the spiritual forces that are manipulating Caesar. I think that's what he would have said. Don't forget, your enemy is not that person who's dragging you into the Colosseum. Your enemy is Satan. But he also, he also, uh, he also says the schemes of the devil. He calls it his schemes. The only other time that schemes is used in Ephesians is in chapter 4, when he says, don't be led about by false teaching. It's the same word. So I think he has both political opposition to the church in mind by calling them rulers and authorities, but he also has false teaching in mind when he says schemes, false gospels. And the way we combat false gospels and the way we combat uh, political opposition to the church is the same. We take up the whole armor of God that we can withstand in the evil day. When's the evil day? Now, that's exactly right. The evil day is not some day in the eschatological future. It's not some day in the future in which uh, the opposition of Satan is more is increasingly felt. I think it's, it's the same as the last days. It's, it's the day in which the old creation is being done away with and the new creation is coming in. And he, he has, in, especially in mind with the political opposition and the false teaching, because both of those threaten the unity of the church, he says, stand united together to the unity of the church. And again, all of these yous are you plurals. So he doesn't have in mind a single person putting on this different armor. He has in mind all of the Christian community together putting on the armor as one. So then, uh, the picture then is not of one person standing. It's not a one-person army standing against Satan. It's the picture of the entire church standing against Satan. Now, picture that in your mind. It's not a picture of, it's not one person. It's not you. It's the entire church putting on this armor together. That is the opposition against the devil. So then what is he, what are the elements of this armor? Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. We already saw in Ephesians 1 that the truth is the gospel. The two other references to truth in Ephesians are both the gospel, speaking the truth in love, right, in Ephesians 4, and then Ephesians 1, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So put, remind yourself of the truth that's been told to you in the gospel, what is real and what is not, and, and whose you are against the lies of the devil that would say you're not a child of God, you're not justified, you're, you, you are condemned. Instead, say in response to that, no, in Christ I am justified, I am righteous, I am a child of God. That's how we put on the truth. The, the breastplate of righteousness. Now Paul doesn't mention justification in Ephesians. He does talk about unrighteousness twice and righteousness twice also. But the breastplate of righteousness, again, I think is our justification. We remind ourselves of our justification. And as we preach the gospel to one another, we, put, we, we are able to stand firm against all of the opposition of the devil. So if that's false teaching, what that looks like is being able to combat it in a sense that the false teaching can't get us. If it's political opposition, what it looks like is when you're condemned by worldly courts you remind yourself that you're not condemned before Christ. And when the bad guys come to get you and carry you into prison, you remind yourself that I am a child of God and I'm not condemned by God. I am righteous in the sight of God. 
as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This, this especially seems to be with the intent of running into enemy territory uh, and sharing the good news of peace, which is an allusion to um, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the gospel of peace, the good news of peace from Isaiah 40. The, the word of the return from exile, once again. In all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You find yourself especially tempted or find yourself especially uh, prone towards doubt, doubt of the goodness of God, doubt of your justification, doubt of God's love for you. The answer to that is faith which comes from the Spirit. And taking up faith that says, no, what Satan is accusing me of is not true. The, the truest thing in the world is that God loves me and that I am justified. Because when we allow the flaming darts of Satan, the temptations that he sends, temptations to doubt God's sovereignty or God's goodness or God's kindness or that we are God's children, when we allow that to affect us in a deep way, the result is always falling away or sinning or not loving our brothers and sisters. And instead, when we by faith say, no, that is not true, the gospel is true, the flaming darts of Satan can't harm us. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the lies of Satan. Yeah, I think so. The accuser. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Um, I, think, I think the Word of God uh, here is in reference to the Gospel. That's how Paul uses the Word of God in Romans 10. I don't think he's, I don't think he's talking about the Bible here. I think he's talking about the Gospel. When, when Paul talks about the Word of God... I think pretty consistently he uses that as shorthand for the gospel. So the sword of the Spirit is not our Bibles. The sword of the Spirit is the message of the gospel. So in all of these, he's saying, put on the gospel. And then how do you put on the gospel? How do you put on the gospel armor? How do you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 18, by praying. Yeah, by praying in the Spirit. That's exactly right. By praying at all times in the Spirit. It's a participle that's adverbial to the phrase to put on the armor of God. The means through which we put on the armor of God is prayer. So yes, it's preaching the gospel to ourselves, but it's preaching the gospel to ourselves as we pray the gospel. As we remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. As we pray the truthfulness of the gospel and remind ourselves of that. The righteousness or justification. uh, The word of truth. That is how we put on this armor. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? I don't think it means praying in tongues. Because if it meant praying in tongues, Paul doesn't talk about praying in tongues anywhere else. I think it means empowered by the Spirit. That one of the Spirit's ministries in our lives is to empower our prayers so that we can put on this gospel armor. It's the same thing Paul talked about, being strengthened by the Spirit at the end of chapter 3, so that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith and you'll know the love of God. So we pray with the Spirit enabling us and empowering us to pray, with the result that the armor of the gospel is put on. And Paul ends with this with saying, so pray for me also, so that I will be bold in my proclamation for the, of the gospel. Did you know that Paul was tempted to be afraid in proclaiming the gospel? Did you know that? Paul was tempted to be fearful as he preached the gospel. Lastly, Tychicus seems to have a particular ministry in reading the letters, and then encouraging the saints. So the way I picture it 
is Tychicus's reading the letter to the Ephesians. And then as he's doing it, he's probably pointing out evidences of grace or talking to how this can especially be applied in the lives of the particular church he's reading this to. If this is a circular letter, then he's probably, when he gets to things like children obey your parents, he might be pointing out, and we see this all over this church, don't we? Or maybe when he gets to sexual immorality, he says, and this is something you guys especially need to work on. I think Tychicus had maybe even a preaching ministry as he reads this letter. Lastly, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes from God. Faith itself is a gift from God. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible, which is a description of all Christians. It's not a description of some Christians who love God with with incorruptible love, but all Christians. So if you doubt your love for God, if you've ever been discouraged that you feel like you don't love God as you should, trust that God has given you incorruptible love. And that incorruptible love which he gave you is going to be sustained to the end. If you find your love for God waning and waning and going back and forth to the tides and circumstance, maybe you love God on the good days and on the bad days, I think that this, this text especially encourages us that our love for God is incorruptible if we're in Christ. And at the end, in the last day, it's going to be proven because God loves us that we do have incorruptible love towards God.